You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to Drinks with Tony. Today on the show, we have Kim Dower. She's the author of I Wore This Dress Today for You, Mom. We discuss joy, tragedy, Baudelaire's grave, Hollywood forever, writing prompts, and when eighth graders debate your poetry. Hi, everyone. My name is Kim Dower, and I'm here having drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Kim Dower. She's the author of I Wore This Dress Today for You, Mom. Hi, Kim. Tony, how are you? Well, I am fantastic now that I can see you. You know, there's just, there's, you just always bring me joy. I don't know what it is. (laughs) And I don't know if you're great around other people too in this way, but you always bring me joy. Oh, that makes me feel so good. Seriously. I don't, I like to bring people joy and they don't often tell me that I do. So I don't, (laughs) you know, it's nice to know. Yeah. So you do have, you do intentionally kind of go through life with a kind of, with, with a joy of sorts. I do. Yeah. I'm a very joyful person, very yeah. dark and miserable inside and very joyful on the outside. No, I, I, I actually, you know, even when I'm anxious, afraid, even when something's going on, I can laugh about it. Actually, I have a good sense of humor that way. Um, it's it has saved me on numerous occasions. We we yes so. hum, humor and a creative outlet I think um, is <laughs> saves us on like eighty percent of life. <laughs> and and a little vodka and rosé. And vodka and rosé together that's kind of gross. You know, <laughs> not together, Tony. But I wonder what that would be. Um, how alcoholic would that be, though? <laughs> just like a big glass of, it's just like at some point in your life, it's like you like rosé, like your go-to drinks are rosé and vodka. And at some point you're just like, you know what? Um, I'm just, they're both going the same glass now. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah. You know, um, I used to know somebody who, who, who said um, it all goes down the same way. Mm-hmm. So, you know? It all goes down the same way. But um, anyway, yeah, I think during these last two years, we haven't seen each other in person. Uh, We're all just start start crawling out of our various little holes from, you know, like like newly little born bunnies, you know, looking at the world. You know, do I dare go, go to Rite Aid without a mask? I think that's on everyone's mind. I mean, are we ready to just sharp bases again um it's a stressful time you know it's it is i you know i was i went and saw nick cave last month at the shrine it was my first um event of that of that size and not a lot of people were wearing wearing masks and i didn't wear a mask because i needed to be in it in a way that felt like we weren't where we are in time and I was just sure. like, if this kills me, it's worth it. <laughs> if this, if this is what did, if this is what yeah. does me in, I'm okay with this because I'm having a religious 
spiritual human experience. And I think everyone else is kind of there going, yeah, we, we need this. So. I think that's, you really said it all. Honestly, I know you're kidding, but uh, like, what a way to go. You know, at this point, the things that we choose to do, uh, we want to do them enough so that it really doesn't matter, like enough. And um, we're not, because of the, because of the shots and the booster, we're, it's not going to kill us. Those of us who got those, those shots, you know, we'll, we'll get a little sick, but we don't have to worry about dying. You know, I don't think. And yeah. it's not worth it anymore for a lot of us to constantly live in fear, to make our decisions based on, are we afraid? Um, so, you know, that sounds really fun and you didn't get sick, right? From the Yeah. And it kind of blew my mind. Cause I was, I was like, all right, in a couple of days, I'm going to feel this. Right. And it's just like, wait, nothing. And I'm like, oh, wow. You know, it, it's, um, yeah, it's, you know, I, I have anxiety. I've had anxiety like before COVID. I think, I think, uh, I think COVID brought out the, um, it's like, oh, this is what Tony's been feeling when he has panic attacks. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, now the whole world's feeling it. And I'm like, I apologize. But yeah, this, this is how I used to just get places. I had, you know, I'd work through a lot of therapy and a lot of exposure therapy and do a lot of work. And then the worst thing you can do for a guy like me who needs to continue to, exercise those muscles of exposure is put him in his apartment and go, yep, we're in lockdown. <laughs> and I'm like, this feels yeah, oddly comfortable and it's going to suck beyond belief as I try to get back out, you know? Yeah, no, you, you got it. I, I, you know, I wrote, I wrote a lot of poems during the pandemic and one of the first, like the first two weeks I wrote a poem called a hypochondriac's dream come true because <laughs> I too, you know, it's like, finally, I can be afraid of things. And it's not irrational. Like other people understand what I'm going through. And there was some relief in that to be afraid at a time when everyone's afraid. It's not just me, you know. Yeah. Um, I get that. Yeah. Um, and I was able to, to help other people handle their fear based on having had those fears a lot of my life. It's interesting. I was an experienced, fearful person. <laughs> well, well, new I know it's just like people go, oh, you don't have a PhD. And I'm like, no, I got a PhD in fear and anxiety. So, you know, if you need any help with that, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> really? I'm your man. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. So it's, it's, but I think we're all ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to go out and read my poems to people and, closed rooms without masks and no ventilation i'm ready you know yeah exactly it's a, and, and it's just like you know in the end we're all gonna die anyway so there is that looming you know it's just i think it reminded all of us it's just like oh yeah we do die you know right. 100 years from now none of us are around and no probably no one's going to care about most of us. So that's why I got a huge tombstone at Hollywood forever and I'm making payments on it. No, no, I'm kidding. Really? <laughs> no, I'm that's not. A cemetery, so now maybe we can be next to each other. Oh yeah. So we, I, okay. Yeah. But let's wait, wait, maybe we can get half off if we like cremate together and then just, you know, somehow, <laughs> you know, who's going to make that phone call? I'm not ready to do that, but you know, I want to be, I want to be next to Dee Dee Ramon, not Jody, not, not Johnny Ramon. I want, I want to be over where Dee Dee is. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, listen, I wrote a book called Sunbathing on Tyrone Power's grave. Mm -hmm. And he is at Hollywood Forever. And I did used to sunbathe on his grave. And that's one hell of a beautiful tombstone he's got. I mean, we should be like right next to him. He's got the swans floating around him and everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I want you yeah. get the peacocks and the swans and the I love Hollywood yeah. forever. It just it really blows my mind how um how you know I, I love cemeteries, but we don't have that in you know in San Francisco, we didn't have that. It's just yeah. you know, up there it's you it's Colma. You go to Colma, you know, my relatives are buried up there in the Italian cemetery and in a couple other places, and it's just like, but it doesn't have the it doesn't have a Hollywood forever thing where you just kind of go there and you're like, let's just go have lunch. Let's have lunch with the swans and the dead. Absolutely. I I'm with you. And I also am with you that I love cemeteries and I lived in Boston for seven years and they've got some fine graveyards. I mean, nothing like Harvard yard graveyards, you know, and uh. dead people like from the 1600s. I and mean, we're talking about really dead people not like still moving possibly dead people, but like out for 300 years. And those graveyards are sensational, very beautiful, very romantic. But yeah, I mean, they're not Hollywood graveyards. Yeah. And I love the one in Westwood too. That one with uh, where, you know, uh, Marilyn Monroe is and Don Knotts yeah. and, you know, I think Merv Griffin's over there. You're just sitting there. You're walking. It's just like, wow, you know, we're all going to die. But these people gave it. These people gave us something, you know, they gave us, uh, they, they, st they still live on. Yeah. And let's, since we're having this conversation, and I really don't know why we're having it, but since we're having it, let's not leave out Forest Lawn. I mean, come on. Yeah. Forest Lawn, for your listeners who are not familiar. So that's, uh, in the valley, right? Like it's not really Burbank. Where is it? It's by the studios, but. Oh, okay. I don't think I've been there. I, I thought you were talking about the one in Glendale. Probably that's what I'm talking about. Now I have okay. no idea about geography. Cause like, me, like, like Jimmy Stewart's at that yeah. one in Glendale and well, is that the one? Famous one, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. it's so beautiful. I mean, they really take care of the lawns and yeah. the sprinkler system is, you know, insane and everything. Um, no, we've got some really nice celebrity. We do. Yeah. Lost, uh, lost you there for a second. There we go. Um, yeah. And it's just, and then so like, so like finding, um, yeah, I know, uh, Ed Bunker is is at um uh Hollywood Forever, you know, and I'm a huge fan of his. And I didn't even know he was at Hollywood Forever. I'm like, wait, where's that bunker? And it's just like, oh, he's kind of across the street from Dee Dee, a little to the left. And it's just like the, the, a lot of our writers are are around, you know. It's I mean, even if you go to San Pedro, we got Bukowski, and then we also have um D Boone from uh what was the great band, the huh. Minutemen. They're they're oh. close to each other. Okay, huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not like name dropping my world travels, but I did go to Paris three years ago before all of this yes. and it was sensational. Okay. So talk about graveyards. I mean, my main, one of the main things I want to do was go to Baudelaire's grave. Mm 
And I still haven't have been to Baudelaire's grave. I've only gone uh, to I've only gone to Père Lachaise, and I've been to Paris twice. And the first oh. thing on my next, I mean, people are like, the first thing I land, I get over my jet lag. I'm going straight to Baudelaire's grave because yeah. I kick myself for not having gone yet. Well, it was the highlight of my trip. I mean, honestly, I mean, I loved every second of being there in Paris, but um, what a graveyard, what a beautiful cemetery, what a beautiful place. And at his graveyard, there was, um, you know, there were flowers, like a few little flowers and um, a, a few copies of his poems. Paris Spleen, the, the book was sort of there. Oh, yeah. And I, I just, you know, I talked to him. I read a couple of his poems to him. Uh-huh. I was like, remember you wrote this. Yeah. It it was it, it's really beautiful. Yeah, what is it? Why do we love them so much? Graveyards and cemeteries. I don't know. It's I, I maybe it's a maybe it's hope. You know, maybe it's hope there's meaning in all of this or something. Yeah. I don't know because but, we i mean like we have baudelaire baudelaire you know it's um he's touched me in a way where it's like he's had a conversation with me but i never we were never alive at the same time so yeah. but but it's just like oh thank you for the conversation and for shifting my perspective a little bit he you know it's like we it's like there's baudelaire and he nudged me a little bit in my life and may have changed, you know, may have given me a little, you know, how we shift just a little bit. And then all of a sudden we're kind of on a different path. It doesn't have to be yeah. hugely different, but it's just, just a little bit, you know. Yes. Well, I guess we also go, we go to mourn in a way, the people that we care about. I mean, Hollywood forever, that's sort of a fun, silly situation with the, with the celebrities, but the people who really had meaning for us, we, we can talk to them, you know, we can talk to them at their grave and we can thank them in some way. We believe that they hear what we're saying to them. You know, I was like, I came all this way for you. Do you understand? I live in Los Angeles. This is, this is a 12 hour flight. And I think he got it. I mean, I, I there was a leaf that kind of flew. Um, or he was mad. You were giving him a guilt trip. He's like, come on lady. <laughs> That's true. God, I might have annoyed him. Like, oh, these women. Oh. <laughs> I would just to annoy Baudelaire would be just the that'd be it. I'd be like, okay, I've had the greatest day of my life. I annoyed Baudelaire. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll never know what he thought. Yeah. But I might write a poem about it. Yeah, I the, don't know. Like, well, I mean, I'm, I've been. I've been working on this book, a, a very silly, humorous book about life after death. But, um, but I mean, do you, do you think about that? What, like, what do you, what do you think it's on? What do you think's on the other side? Do you think there's a, there's a plan or a, what, what, what's, what, it, what do we do? There's nothing, Tony. There's nothing. I mean, I hate to break it to you. It's nothingness. Nah. I'm kind but, of comforted you know, by I, that. I, listen, I can go, I, yeah, I mean, I can go into all the different thoughts I've had throughout my life, you know, for a while it was, oh, we go back to the earth and our essence and our this, and I'm going to be a cat, I'm going to come back as a French poodle, you know, 
with a very rich family and they're going to feed me real food. And, you know, I mean, I could go through all these, <laughs> the truth is, uh, yeah, you know what it is? It's going to be the memories that we leave people with. And maybe some of us will be lucky enough to have someone write about us and it won't be a bad thing they're writing and that will live on. And um, it's just all in stories and memories. Hopefully they'll sit around the, the table at Thanksgiving and say, your great grandmother, Kim Dower, <laughs> she was joyful. And she bugged Baudelaire. Did you read that when they when they re-examined Baudelaire's thoughts in the afterlife? One of the first things he said was, "Joyous Kim came over and bugged me." <laughs> the clouds, the clouds. She kept talking about the clouds. Um. Yeah. So I think that's what they have. They have our memories. You know, they have stories about us, the people who we leave behind. But. We're going to be done with it. Then no more plans for us. Right. And no, and no more bills to pay. I mean, you know, there's, there's, you know, no more, no more uh, getting stuck in traffic. No more sheets to wash. No more sheets to wash. <laughs> the, um, yeah, it's it, and then when what's funny is I really like that you thought that you said that we leave the stories behind, and in and in the end, everything I feel like everything is storytelling. We're always telling each other stories, and and then, but you know, you craft it. You 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 are we 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 do something where we work on it and craft it. So like more than our friends give a crap about it, you know. Right. Hopefully a few more, right. a few more of our, it, it always intrigues me when it's just like, oh, wait, a friend didn't buy my book. Somebody outside. How did you know about, oh, it was at a way, a bookstore. Oh, what? <laughs> no, I know. I know. You know, really, it's lovely to have friends and family read our stuff. And I do appreciate that. Um, but most of my friends and family don't. Read yeah, stuff, yeah. No. You know, but um, strangers, I mean, you know, um, it was the line in the, you know, Streetcar Named Desire, where she says, I depend upon the kindness of strangers. Well, writers truly depend upon <laughs> the readership of strangers, because that's who we want. We, we want people to read us who don't know us. Isn't that where it's at, really? Yeah. And, and, and it's, I mean, what blows my mind is just how important it is when I find a writer that I, you know, pull off the shelf and get to read them and go, oh man, and they touch me and they don't know who I am. Right. And, it, and it's just that, and there's just, there's an excitement to that. It's, it's Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's a thrill. I'll tell you my best thrill. My best thrill was I got an email from a teacher in the Midwest, um, an eighth grade honors English class. And they found my poem because Garrison Keillor reads a lot of my poems on the writer's almanac. I'm really, really, oh really glad. Yeah. And I don't know him, I've never met him. So it's, it's, it's um, he just likes my work. So that's even great too. But anyway, he read a poem of mine I wrote it's in this new book called Bottled Water. And 
um, the class read it and they were to debate about it. And did I mean to be funny or didn't I mean to be funny? And what does it say about life and all of these things? And the teacher emailed me and said, would you be willing to call in and talk to the class about the poem? Wow. And that just reminds I would have said, actually, I'll fly out. <laughs> I'll be there. I I was so close. I mean, I think it was someplace I'd never want to go to, you know, no offense uh-huh. to wherever that place is. But um, I mean, I didn't know anyone there. I, I, I honestly, if it was any city where I knew people or I, I would have flown there because, yeah. you know, that was the greatest compliment I've ever received about my work. Um, you know, nice reviews, nice things, great. But a, a teacher, eighth graders having a hot debate about a poem to me is like, that's the, that's it. You and know? you're, you're in their consciousness for the rest of their lives. Most of them will, you know, you remember those things. Yeah. I love that. The, so, um, the, yeah, what, I mean, it's really nice. Yeah. What, what's it like uh, hearing Garrison Keillor read your poetry? Uh, extraordinary. Yeah. Love. You know, yeah. I love it. First of all, I love listening to anyone read it because they have different inflections. They put emphasis on different parts. They, you can see the thing come alive when it's not your own voice. Yeah. And um, he, uh, he's great, you know, the way he reads. I mean, you can go on my website and type in Garrison Keillor. All of them are there and you can... He's, um, he's just, I love what he chooses too. He's got a big heart, you know, he really does. And he likes the, the I think the, the more personal ones he likes and um, the very narrative, which I am very narrative. So my poems tell stories usually rather than lyric poems, but um, I, I can't believe it when I listen to him read a poem. I have to squint. I have to go like this because it almost hurts. You know, it's like sunlight. Wow. I interviewed him once and, and oh, he's, del- that- he, oh, he's delightful. He's, I, I was just, you know, I was just like, Oh my God. It's, you know, you know, when like, it's like someone on that level, when you interview him, you're like going, okay. It's just like, is this going to be, is this going to suck? <laughs> is everything I've thought about them going to go to hell? And then it's just like, he just played along was utterly delightful and just, and yeah. it's just like, he was, he was present and he wasn't, um, he was there to have a conversation. He wasn't there to, you know, uh, with like, yeah, I got to get through this thing and then move on. It was, it was just beautiful. Yeah. That's very nice. That's great. I like it. I, I, um, I like it, yeah, I like so that, it when, nice. oh, go ahead. <laughs> we have a little delay no, there, yeah. and you, and you have a uh, you have a you have a you have a truck out there that's going the boop boop. I do. Boop. I I have more than a truck out there, Tony. And I'm sorry <laughs> for you, and I'm sorry for listeners. But you should all feel sorry for me because this has been a nightmare. There's some like, you know, the workers, the workers with the yellow vests and the hat and the whole thing. There's like 50 of them, and they're digging up the street. I, I, it's like I'm on 48th and Lexington Avenue in New York. We're all wow. day long. Yeah. I grew up with this was the music of my life. 
but I'm right here on Melrose Avenue, Melrose and Gardner in West Hollywood. You know, uh, what are you doing? Right. Horrible. Yeah. yeah. What are you doing to my day? <laughs> yeah. And I'm really sorry about this because I only have interviews like last week, this week, next week. It's my whole life is that's it. And this is when they're there tearing up the street. Isn't it always the way, though? I don't know, Tony. It's not that way at the graveyards, at the cemeteries. You know, they don't. Yeah. They don't make noise like that. Well, the next time we do an interview, we're going to be at Hollywood Forever with my field gear. We'll just we'll we'll, we'll go sit on Ty, Tyrone Powers' grave. Yes, Back we will. Forth. Great. Um, I am sorry about. That. No, it's fine. It's people. People need to understand the audio onslaught assault yeah. of what happens when you live in Los Angeles. It's not all. It's not all paradise, people. It's not all paradise. It, it is not. It is absolutely not all surfboards and suntan lotion. You, you know? live in a great <laughs> part of town, though. It's are you walkable to like the New Beverly and uh, the farmers market? I am. I am. And I, I hate to sound like, you know, all my relatives from the East Coast, but um, it's gotten a little a little dangerous around here. I mean, oh, yeah. um, you know, I mean, we're you're on the east side, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, East Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but West Hollywood, Hollywood, this you, you have to look both ways. You have to really be on your toes around here lately. Yeah, I know. I've noticed that here, too. I mean, it was rough when all the businesses were shut down because I was literally walking over, you know, bodies of junkies who just decided that our neighborhood was now the neighborhood to um, shoot up in and collapse. And uh, our stoop, you know, was just like had to walk around people just getting high. And I'm just like, I don't there. They don't live here. I don't know where they're coming. They're coming from. But for some odd reason, we were the place to be when everything was boarded up so it's nice that yeah well are... this is very much what's happening it's on your side of town too. i mean there's yes it's now here so I, there's a tent up the block here um somebody's living in there and i just like cross my fingers every time i'm going to my car that this person in the tent isn't going to come out and i feel really sad i mean it's all sad it, none of us likes to see this around us um, but it's also it's got its element of, uh, you know, danger. Yeah. Because, you know, you got to be careful. You, you can't just feel sad. You have to feel sad and also alert. Right. And, and I, yeah, it's like during pan, during lockdowns and stuff, I had to, you know, we had to, we had to move our cars because of yeah. street cleaning uh, still, they, they knocked it off to every other week now, but there was, I mean, moving, moving my car, I had to do it during a certain time of the day. Because if I did it after dark, people were out messing with me, you know, and it's just like, oh, man, I, I left the Tenderloin in San Francisco to get away from this vibe. And yeah. now it's here. But yes. but there's not like a pub, you know, I'm not walking down the street with my crater records to go DJ at, at a pub. It's just here in the sad part of it, you know. It's exactly right. It's it's there's no romance in it. There's no history. There's no sort of sexiness to it. Like the tenderloin, what you're talking about that that had a vibe that was dangerous and all of this, but it also had a historical sense. It you're also in San Francisco, 
and no matter where you are, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but here, you don't have the upside of of all of that <clears throat> sorrow and street and violence. I mean, not that there's an upside to violence, but what you're saying is, I mean, in LA, we're just getting the bad part of this, you know? Yeah. And and I think in San Francisco, especially when you live in uh, areas like the Tenderloin, you get to know all of your neighbors. There, there's, a, there's a thing where it's just like, even when you're walking down the street, you kind of know who's who's from where, you know, the few blocks you're in. And, yeah. if, and if there's a situation going on, you can go up to them and go, hey, are you okay? Um, because, and, and people would do that to me if, you know, and they'd be like, Hey, are you all right? If it was just like one in the morning or something, there was always kind of a checking in, even though we didn't quite know each other, but we knew enough that we were in the neighborhood and there was, there was a lot of stuff going on and it's, you know, sometimes it's just like, Hey, keep walk with me the next couple blocks. And they're like, you got it. And it's, there, there's almost yeah. a beauty to that because it brings the neighborhood together. And I, and it's hard in Los Angeles because it's not a walking city where it's kind of like you're in your car and you're like, Hey, are you okay? It's like, no, I want you to get out of my way so I can make a right turn. Yeah. 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 No, that's right. It's, um, it's very anonymous. Yeah. And I mean, even in New York, as huge as New York is, as you say, if you're in your neighborhood, you know, the people you also know, Oh, he's a regular. You yeah. know, that guy sleeping on the street, he's a regular. I don't have to worry right. about Yeah. You know, he's a regular. And you can bring him coffee or do whatever. And there is that sense. But here, I have never felt it. And, you know, um, I moved here from New York 40 years ago. It's a long time. Um, and I have never, even though this is my home, this is my family, you know, my son was born and raised here. I have deep roots here now. I have never felt home like I did in New York um, because of the transient nature of, you know, people don't want to know their neighbors. A lot of times there's there, it, it is such a driving city that you never really feel you're part of it. Yeah. it's. It, look, go ahead. It's why a lot of us move here too, for an ant for anonymity, you know, we, we, we don't want to be in an elevator with 15 people just trying to get to the supermarket. You know, we want to be free to just get where we need to get and not know people. But after a while, you want to know people. And you miss the elevators and you miss the irritation. And then sometimes in those elevators, you're like, oh, my God, Tim, it's been two years. What happened? And, it, and those beautiful conversations you have or even when you're on, uh, you know, uh, public transit, it's... Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I, the thing in San Francisco that I that I miss that I try to do when I'm in L.A. and it, it rarely happens, but the shouting out the car, your name or I, I just like it, in San Francisco. It's very normal. <laughs> like once once a couple times a week, you'd hear a yo, Tony. And then I turn around, it'd be someone I knew and they would be on a bus yeah. or they'd be in a taxi. Or, and it's just that's just very normal to then I was like driving down. I saw the guy who owns the cafe up the street. And I was like, yo, Jose. And he like looked at me and he started cracking up because he's just like, it came out of nowhere. Cause you don't do that in LA. But every time I, I if I see someone I know I'm yelling out the window because it, that just kind of reminds me of San Francisco. Yeah. It's nice. It's neighborhood. It's, it's great to run into someone here that, you know, you know, that's yeah. always so, Wow. 
Yep. Well, you know, I did live in a neighborhood in LA for a while when my son was little in Hollywood on a street with families and kids. And it did feel very much like a street in New York, like even though it was, oh, it yeah. was an apartment. Uh -huh. And that was really lovely. And I'm very grateful to have had that situation. Um, but that's over. Yeah. You know, okay. Yeah, and so, and you know, getting to your book now that we're 36 minutes in. Yeah, <laughs> I'm ready. Now uh, you talk about your son and it's a lot about um, the, the it's, you, you bring up the complications of just ma motherhood and, you know, having a mom and being a mom. And it's, it's, uh, it's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. You know, it's the book, as, as we say in the press material, it's not a Hallmark card. I mean, it's sort of looking under the hood of motherhood and all the, you know, it, it's, it's a complicated, particularly mothers and daughters, even in good relationships, it's very complicated. And um, these poems were written over a long period of time. So uh, I'd say 15 years and the poems, some of them are about my relationship with my son, my relationship with my mother, and then my mother's um, dementia, which takes up a lot of the poems here and her sort of decline and my dealing with it, which I do through humor and, and grief at the same time. But for so many of us who have family, people who have dementia, um, this is not an easy time. Uh, and it's, uh, it's also sad, you know, um, and how we cope with it and deal with it varies so much, you know, I mean, some people and no, no, no offense against men, but a lot of men, particularly sons of these people, they want to just disappear. I mean, they don't want to deal with it. Um, it's, it's too painful or uh, too time consuming maybe, or they don't have the skills, I don't know. But oftentimes it falls on the daughter of the family to kind of be the one who's, who's there. Hmm. Uh, I I'm mean, maybe so, that's I'm not so true. offended. Maybe. So offended. <laughs> <laughs> you brought yeah, me joy and uh, now I'm just offended. No. <laughs> oh my God, it's the joy. I'm starting to mix the joy with just misery. Um, well, okay, but yeah, there's there's a point to that because it's not easy. These are complicated. These aren't easy things. These are complicated, complicated things of life. And especially when, you know, our mothers and our fathers, there are rocks. And when we're kids, they're, they're our link to how to um, feel safe in an unsafe world. And then, you know, and then we grow and go, oh, wait, they're also people too. And then we have that realization, but the, but then to watch, to watch them decline is just, you know, gut wrenching. The what one the thought of them dying is gut wrenching, but the but the dec to decline is just hard. It's not you know it's it's not it's it's not a um it, it's grief it's grief and sorrow and you got to find the humor in it. I guess it's just yeah. I mean, you do. I mean, I'm lucky that I can write these poems that really help me um, sort out a lot of feelings. You know. Um, so um, poems, what they do for the reader and the writer is they help sort out very complicated emotions and feelings and make it easier to understand or just help us to understand. So I think that's what I did with these poems. 
you know, write about, after I would visit my mother, often I would write, I'd visit her in the nursing home, I'd write a poem. Um, and uh, a lot of them are funny, you know. Um, you know, I wrote a poem called The People in the Health Food Store Don't Look Healthy. And <laughs> I, I would go there, you know, to get her stuff and it just, it would crack me up, you know, just to think of that title. The people in the health food store don't look healthy. And then I wrote all the reasons why they didn't look healthy. And, um, you know, we're all going there to save ourselves with some jelly or some, you know, drops that, that don't do a goddamn thing, you know, and cost like $59.95. Um, but we're all, you know, we're trying. We're trying to stay on top of it. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know... There's a poem about, you know, Gail can't find my mother's glasses. And, and you know, we start to lose things. And then we have people who know where to look. So she looks in the freezer and she, she finds them in the freezer because that's where my mother would put everything at, at a certain point. You know, why not? Yeah. It makes sense. It'll keep. It'll keep. Right. It's a, and it's, yeah. It's a, it, it, if, if there's a fire, it's, that's probably going to be the last place where, the, where things will burn. That's yeah. why I keep my cocaine in the freezer. I I knew you would. Well, cocaine also—it's <laughs> where it's got to go. I mean, it stays fresh, and I, I think that's smart. You know, that was that a, a tip from Heloise. Um, you know, Heloise on crack. Um, but I I also you know the joy ah see I'm bringing the joy right back. I'm not yeah. leaving it up. The joy of writing poetry is to make the connections to connect what people say or what you hear. I eavesdrop a lot and work that into my poems where, where it helps to deflect and mix up the sadness going on. You know, for example, I, I had visited my mother, which I did every day toward the end. And then I went to the bank and there was this darling young bank teller, this girl, and she had braces on her teeth and she was, she, I mean, maybe she was 21, you know, and um, anyway, and I said, so, so what are you, what do you got going this evening or whatever? And um, I said, are you going to, are you going to have dinner? Like, I don't know why. And she said, oh yes, everybody loves dinner. <laughs> and I just thought that was adorable. Everybody loves dinner. Yeah. And I, you know, and I went to my car and I wrote a poem called everybody loves dinner. And it turned out to be about my mother. And the fact that I went there to visit and I had not brought dinner, you know, wow. so, yeah. So she, this, this young girl, she said something that was so delightful to me that I wanted to use it. And then I was doing my automatic writing and it turned into a poem about not having, having not brought dinner to my mother, but my mother was okay. Cause she thought she already ate it. Um, everybody loves dinner. I think it's the title of the next book. I mean, that's a really good one. <laughs> it's a good one. It's yeah, a good one. it's a really good one. Wait, wait, so. what? Um, you said uh, you called it auto writing. What? What's auto writing for you? Oh, automatic writing. Is that what? So, yeah, yeah. Um, some people call it like fever writing, or um, you know, it's where you write and you don't lift your pen. Or you don't stop typing, don't think, you don't edit, you you just keep moving. You give yourself five minutes, ten minutes, whatever. 
you keep moving. And when you're finished, you will have something really wonderful there that you didn't know about. I like that. And it's, and I feel like that's a way to tap the right side of the brain, the creative side. It, it, it gets the, it gets the, uh, the intellectual part that goes, no, no, you're not writing anything good. Now, if, if, if you're going fast enough, the intellectual part can't catch up. The, the self-doubt can't catch up. Yeah, it's a great thing, you know, but I do find this. I teach these different workshops. Um, I just had a whole day. Oh, God, what are they doing now? Do you hear that? Can you come up with a, a new noise? <laughs> I want to bring my field recording gear there and we can put together the greatest like industrial experimental album with all of these machines just going and putting some beats to it. Yeah. You know, the tragic part is if you, if you, if they were building like the Empire State Building or something, you know, like some fantastic museum, but they're digging a hole in the ground with the sewer. That's what they're doing. There's yeah. nothing exciting or beautiful going on there. Oh, um, it's, a, it's, yeah. <laughs> I, I just, but I, I wanted to say this about the automatic writing because I just yeah. did a whole day, a not an eight hour workshop for UCLA Extension for poetry and I teach workshops a lot on Zoom and I, they're not necessarily for, for people who have been poets, it's new for a lot of people. And when I ask for the automatic writing, I say, okay, here's a prompt. Now put your, I'm gonna tell it, give you 10 minutes, do this, don't lift your pen. The things that they have are so like uh, dressed up. They're, they're, they, and I say, you didn't, you ed did you edit this? No, they didn't edit it, but they're so trained. These young writers, not even young, but they're so trained to write what makes sense and make sure that it makes sense that there was, there's not a lot of wild stuff going on, which is what you wanna get. You wanna get the stuff that doesn't make sense because it's a surprise. They do a beautiful job. I have to say, I could never do what they do. Like it comes out in one perfect piece of prose. Huh. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, uh, a, a, what I love about doing exercises like that for, uh, in, in classes, especially for classes that, you know, where nobody's a writer and it's their first time there and you, you do that and it scares the crap out of them. And yeah. you, uh, and, and my, you know, I go, Hey, you know, I gave you the prompt, but if you forget the prompt, I don't care. It's about continuing to write. If you don't continue to write, I'm going to, I'm going to come back when, back when, you know, we were in, in workshop, I'm like, right. I would come over to them if they stopped writing and I would tap them, the tap their desk and go, yeah, uh, is, and what they would come up with, it would, it would scare some of them to read it out loud. And I have everyone read it out loud yeah, when I can, but when, what they would come up with the, the whole class would be just totally like um, their attention would be on this person who has never written before never read before their work yeah. out loud and to see that interaction and to see the person who wrote it actually affect the people around them whether they laugh or whether they feel sad it, they, they're just like oh wait I do have something to say it's such a beautiful yeah, it is really something to watch that I, I mean I've had people cry in these writing workshops from someone's automatic writing you know someone's prompt writing yeah. and the person who's written it it blows their mind like that people are crying 
about and and it is pretty powerful i mean to have someone cry over something you've written yeah um, there's so much talent out there i mean look it, it's all about then can you sustain it and can you keep going and is this important to you and are you serious but right out of the gate people's raw talent what they write what they think can be um Amazing. I've, I have, I have, they're all amazing in my classes. They, it, cause I think it's there for everybody. If they just, if they just give it permission to come out. Yeah. And if you give them something good to really wrap their heads around, you know, I use other people's poems as prompts. So I read a poem and um, that I particular find, find moving uh, and evocative and connecting, I read it aloud and we talk about it. We talk about it for a while. And then I say, okay, now you. So there's a poem, one of my favorite poets and was a great teacher of mine. His name is Thomas Lux, L-U-X. He's no longer with us, but he wrote a gorgeous poem. Tony, you gotta look it up, it's online. It's called Refrigerator 1957. And you know, he was, probably 10 years old at the time. And he describes the refrigerator more like a vault. And when you open it up, not much. And then he describes, you know, a bald chicken carcass and, you know, what's in that fridge. But the beauty of the poem, and I don't want to ruin it, but in the middle of white nothingness is a jar of maraschino cherries maraschino cherries a word he never heard before and then he writes about where do they come from and he starts writing about the cherries anyway the poem at the end will break your heart it's gorgeous the whole thing is gorgeous so he goes to the fridge so we read it it blows everyone's mind we talk about it and then i say okay you have 15 minutes open up your refrigerator call it refrigerator and a year whatever year you want, open that fridge and give it to us. And that is an incredible moment in whatever class I ever teach. We've got things from the seventies, you know, the Jiffy peanut butter and the ready whip and the, you know, miracle whip and cheese whiz, you know, and, and the refrigerators at friends' houses where you'd go and sneak all the foods you couldn't eat at home. Right. And, you know, and the thing is writing about food, which I do a lot. I wore this dress today for you, mom, must have so many poems with food in them. Because food is a connector too, and it's how we connect to people and families and the different like aromas in the house or the lack of. Um, everybody loves dinner. <laughs> it's so good. The, um, it's so funny to think about the, it, it makes so much sense that food connects us. And it's just like the, the old adage of, you know, millennia, uh, thousands of years ago, you break bread with someone. It's just, there's something, it's just like, you know what? We have to eat. It's, if we really think about it, it's kind of weird that we have to eat to keep going, but while we eat, let's just talk. And there's in, and there's a reason for restaurants and the, the absurdity of why a restaurant works just cracks me up, but restaurants, you know, are people, you know, talk about the food of the restaurant and their foodies and blah, blah, blah. But it's, 
we're renting the space to be around our friends. It's, it's, it's not about the food. It's about the company, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's a very eating, it's social, it's cultural, it's ethnic. It's, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I was, I was saying to you the other day, um, again, something about one of my poems, but you know, my whole life, you know, I come from a, a Jewish New York family and it's very important what you eat when you go someplace. I mean, you know, it's not that we were religious, but it's the whole cultural thing of eating. So if ever I went to a friend's for dinner or whatever, the first question when I got home, so what did they serve? Uh-huh. <laughs> what did they serve? It was just, cra- even as a child, it cracked me up, you know, they served liver, liverwurst on Ritz crackers, mom. I mean, it's like, relax. It wasn't a, we didn't have white tablecloths and napkins, but they want to know, you know, what did you eat? What did they serve you? Um, was it good? Uh, and those kinds of questions I find very, very funny. And I ask them now of my own son, you know, like if he tells me they go someplace, they go, oh, what did they serve? Uh-huh. Like, but it, oh, but- but what's great about that is it tells a story. Yeah. Liverwurst on Ritz crackers. I immediately yeah. I immediately think of who would do that, and and it's and I'm bringing my own idea idea of the who and the what and the everything, right. just from that one little thing. It's it, it tells us something about you know. Yeah, and I don't even know why I said that, but it's a type of a family that would have that. You yeah. Know, it's- friend after school who would have that for you you know yeah. we didn't have live a worst in my house you know we had Ritz crackers but I, I it's you know it puts you in a time in an era yeah uh, socioeconomic uh yes. you know, all of that you know they weren't serving sushi so you know I mean I, I I've never written about this but this would be something to put in a poem you know I had one friend in fifth grade named Ruth and she was very rich. You know, when you grow up in New York City, every neighborhood can have everything in it. You know, we yeah. were just regular upper middle class, but down the street was Riverside Drive and an apartment overlooking the river, even in the 60s, they had a housekeeper who wore a uniform, the whole thing. And I, I would go there and I would just think it was weird, but um, we would play Barbies and the housekeeper would come in with a, with a tray and orange slices cut on the round side so they were all sliced on the dish and you would just pull the peel and then take, I'd never seen anything like that. Cause in my house, you just peel the orange. And I went home, I said, mom, you know, Ruth, Ruth's housekeeper sliced the oranges. And you know, I then I had to hear all about, you know, how awful it was that they had a housekeeper, you know, it's just <laughs> yeah. like jealousy, right. you know, because, you know, whatever. But um, you learn so much just yeah. from one little detail in a story or a poem about the food that is served, it tells everything. Right. And you told me that. And I think of the spacious, beautiful apartment they had. And I, I see it as clean and pristine. You know, it, it's I'm, I'm adding in all the other details just by how you were served yeah. oranges at Ruth's house. Right. That's true. And um, so that's really fun. And it's really fun to write those things. And um, 
and have that be enough, you know, because yeah. you pro writers, you have a, you have time to say everything you want. You know, we have to be really concise. One, two, three words, you're done. Get out. That's it. Yeah. Um, it's okay, so, though. You know, yeah. I, I, it's fun. It's great. Kim, thank you for coming on the show. You're welcome. I look so awfully tragic, put on a happy face. Smiling can work like magic, put on a happy face. Take off the gloomy mask of tragedy, it's not your style. You look so good that you'll be glad you decided to smile. Pick out a pleasant outlook, stick out that noble chin. Wipe off the fault of doubt look, Slap on a happy grin And spread sunshine all over the place Just put on a happy face Put on a happy face Put on a happy face Why do you mope around so sourly? It's such a strain I always try to chuckle hourly It clears the brain I knew a girl so gloomy She'd never laugh or sing She wouldn't listen to me Now she's a mean old thing So spread sunshine all over the place Put on a happy drinks with tony check out her new book i wore this dress today for you mom next week on the show we have tim mclaughlin chatting about his book alcohol tobacco and firearms stories and essays keep reading keep writing keep the stories coming i'll see you next week
Listening to 101.9 FM, KPCR LP, Santa Cruz.